welcome this New Year's Eve Eve uh, to City Life as 2017 is about to come to a close. It's crazy. But we have one more service, one more sermon for this year. So I'm excited to dig into God's word tonight. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 35. If you don't have a Bible, you got lucky. There's Bibles under the pews, or maybe you're swiping there on your phone. But if you're turning there, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. And if you're a note taker, you're awesome. And if you're a note taker, you can put down as a title, Iron Chariots. Iron Chariots. But as you guys turn the pages of your Bible, I wanted to give a shout out to to two people specifically who I know uh, read through the Bible cover to cover for the first time this year. Uh, they, they mentioned it on social media, so I want to give them a shout out because they were encouraging others to dig into God's Word. The same way that Nate talks about life groups, like with your relationships, with, with gathering, like this should just be the tip of the iceberg, this hour and a half on a weekend. You should be able to dig deeper during the week in those relationships, whether it's a life group or simply meeting somebody for coffee or calling them on the phone where I hope that a Saturday night is just the tip of the iceberg for your relationships here. But in the same way, I hope that Saturday nights are just the tip of the iceberg for what you're experiencing from God's Word. I hope that during the week you're digging in for yourself and reading in the Word about what God says about who He is and who you are and what you're called to do. So I just want to give a shout-out. Uh, Jennifer Rockwell and Lindsay Hoy both read through the Bible this past year. And uh, I want to give you guys... Uh, these bookmarks, and maybe you're like, bookmarks, that's corny, but these are, these are pretty cool bookmarks because they're from our uh, missionaries in Turkey. So they're in another language, so good luck reading them. But there's, uh, there's one from Psalms, there's one from Isaiah. Uh, the one from Isaiah is, is the one about eagles rising up and waiting on the Lord that we just preached on a couple weeks ago. So I'm giving these to you guys, and hopefully when you see that, and even as I'm giving it out, it's a reminder that with God's word, we read it and we internalize it, but God's word is meant to be sent. Whether it's Turkey or your workplace, we're supposed to be sharing the, the, the hope that we have and God's word that we know and what we know about Jesus Christ, we're supposed to be passing it on. So all that said, thank you for sharing your experience uh, last year reading through the word. And actually, speaking of sharing, next week, January 6th. Uh, is our annual sharing service. Now, if you haven't been coming to City Life for years, what that is is we do it every year. It's the first weekend in January where I'm not going to be up here speaking for 30 to 40 minutes. You guys get enough of that. What you're going to hear is, is everybody here sharing about 2017 and what God did in his faithfulness. Just a couple minutes, each person, right? Because some of us had years that were in the valley, yet God showed his faithfulness in the, in the valley. Some of us had a mountaintop year where God showed his faithfulness on the mountaintop. But for each one of us, our unique stories paint pictures of God's faithfulness and his goodness. So it may sound like, really? But, man, trust me, you sit through 30 minutes of people sharing about what God did in their life last year, it will, it will not only uh, stir up thankfulness, but it will stir up expectation for what God can do in 2018. So I'm just planting that thought with you because maybe you did read through the Bible in a year or something big happened last year that you want to share. It's not a speech. It's nothing formal. Just people coming up and sharing for a couple minutes. But that's next week. So you can put that on your calendar, January 6th. You're going to be here anyways. So that's what we're going to be doing. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 39, left my clicker down here. What it says is don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. 
And then the author quotes Habakkuk. He says, in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one who lives by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Remember that phrase, shrinking back. It says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Let's pray before I go any further. Lord God, we thank you for tonight. God, we thank you already for the time of worship that we had. God, but we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that from cover to cover, whatever portion we open up to, it tells us about who you are, tells us about how you created man, how you created us, Lord God, and it shapes our purposes, it shapes our perspectives. God, I pray that you would do that tonight with your word. God, shape the way we view you, how we view ourselves, and how we view what you're looking to do through us, both individually and as a church in 2018. God, we ask all these things in your name, and everybody said, amen. So again, I don't know what your 2017 looked like, but good news, uh, the season of self-improvement is upon us, right? That 10,000 calorie Christmas day you had, or maybe Christmas week you had, where it was 10,000 calories per day, don't even worry about it, right? You get to purge and reinvent yourself coming real soon. You just flip a switch, new year, new me, right? It's the year of New Year resolutions. How many of you guys do resolutions every year? You, you try to start new disciplines, uh, new practices, nobody. Hopefully you're the kind of people where it's like, yeah, I don't need a date. I do it all throughout the year. Hopefully. Hopefully. Because there is. We might joke New Year's resolutions, but it's a, it's a good picture for us and for our culture because what New Year's resolutions teach us is change doesn't just happen. There's no Disney transformation where all of a sudden we spin around and we're a totally new person or we're transformed. Like, it, it comes through intentionality. It comes through discipline. Progress isn't accidental. It's intentional. And that's the perspective we take when we take uh, resolutions and we take up new disciplines. We realize that we're not going to get next year's blessings and next year's results with last year's practices, right? There's some areas where we need to step up if we're going to step into promises and purposes God has for us. Because insanity, right, is doing the same thing every year and expecting different results. And New Year's resolutions realizes, hey, if I want to change, maybe I need to change some things that I'm doing. So... Maybe if you've never done New Year's resolutions before, think about it. But where New Year's resolutions, they come and often they go. We'll talk about that in a minute. We are called, if you're following Jesus Christ, if you've dedicated your life to Jesus Christ, we're called to steadfast, steady sanctification. Now, when I talk about sanctification, there's justification where we stand before God, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's right standing with God. It's about position. Sanctification is about the Holy Spirit in us and the process that the Holy Spirit works in us to make look more like Jesus Christ daily. So justification is about the position. Sanctification is about the process. I don't want to oversimplify it. That's an entire sermon series in and of itself. But the thing with our sanctification, looking more and more like Jesus, this call that we have on our lives is sometimes we feel stuck. Like with our, our New Year's resolutions, it's kind of like we give up hope and we're ready to punt. Because like we were talking about, about 90%, there's probably all kinds of statistics, but about 90% of New Year's resolutions don't make it past February, right? February, all these New Year's resolutions are dying off. There's all kinds of reasons that that happens. But one of the main reasons that a lot of our, our resolutions in life or our plans fail is because we fail to foresee obstacles. We fail to foresee obstacles. We, we don't consider 
opposition and not just the obstacles and the opposition, because we realize troubles will come, but the emotions that can accompany it. The thoughts that can accompany it. Charles Duhigg, a reporter and author who wrote a book called The Power of Habit. He says, people fail to anticipate what the obstacles are going to be. So in the heat of the moment, when you encounter that obstacle, it's kind of devastating. And it totally throws you off your stride. You know, if we fail to anticipate the reality that in life we're going to come against opposition and obstacles, it means we're unprepared when it comes. But by anticipating it ahead of time, you can stay on track in the moment. In psychology, this is known as the hot, cold empathy gap, right? Think of it as a failure of imagination. When you're in your quote-unquote cold state, you're at your desk, you're looking toward the future, you're planning all the new things you're going to do in this new season, the new disciplines you're going to have, the resolutions you're going to make. Sometimes we can fail to consider not just the, the fact that we'll have opposition, but those what they call hot, effective states and what they have, the effects they have on us. What are the hot states? Fear, exhaustion, right, hunger, just a bad day. Like, think about how many people, their number one resolution, right, eat better. So for the first couple of weeks in January, you're eating like a rabbit, like a horse, just eating greens. It's miserable because all you want is a hamburger, right? And you just have a terrible day at work. Your boss is on your back. you got conflict with coworkers. You hit traffic on the way home, but you got a gathering that night. There's a whole spread of just food that you've sworn off eating, but you think, man, after a day like today, I deserve this. So you take a little bit, but then there's the what the heck principle, right? Go big or go home. And you say, whatever, I'm going to eat 10 portions, nine beyond what I should eat. Then you go to bed that night. You wake up the next morning when you said you were going to run. You said you were going to exercise because that's resolution number two, but you're so sluggish. You say, I'm passing on that too. And you've punted two resolutions, maybe more, in the span of a couple hours. Right, the reality is life happens, right? We plan for the ideal so often in planning, but the unideal is unavoidable. It's life. There's peaks, there's valleys, there's bad days, there's good days. And, you know, when we look forward to the future spiritually, so often the verse we look to or we turn to is Jeremiah 29, 11, right? I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope, to give you a future. It's a beautiful verse, right? The proof, I Googled, what does the Bible say about the future? Top 10 results, all lists or just one verse, every single one of them, Jeremiah 29, 11 at the top. And again, it's a beautiful verse, but sometimes we can get this picture. All right, my future, if I follow Christ, prosperity. No hurts, no harm, right? Prosperity. But the, what we forget is this very verse was written to a people in exile. Yes, there's hope, but there's also hardships. The hardships are the reason we need the hope. We live in a broken world. Until Jesus comes back, we're not going to taste true prosperity, eternal life. And we're going to need to cling to God's promises. Now, what's great about the Bible is it contains so many of God's promises. It contains thousands. Some put it, you can do research, some put it around 3,000 promises, some twice that, right, depending on how you see the promises of God. But, you know, the Bible is also laced with conflict. Just Psalm itself, the word enemy is in the book of Psalms 83 times. The whole Old Testament is framed as this battle. The book of Joshua, the entire book is battle after battle after battle until they start breaking out the land. You look at King David, the most prominent character of the Old Testament. His reign was so defined by warfare and conflict that God said, you're not going to build the temple. Uh, your son's going to do it. 
There's been so much violence. And then you look at Jesus' life. Contention followed him all through his ministry to the point where he was crucified on a cross. But before Jesus died, before he resurrected, and before he left his disciples, in the Gospel of John, for a couple chapters really, he's sharing about the times that are going to come. Persecutions, things that the disciples would go through, or people that follow him will go through. And then finally, in John chapter 16, 33, says this beautiful verse. He says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Why would Jesus spend chapters, long moments with the disciples, preparing them for persecution before closing with this statement? Because he's helping them foresee obstacles and opposition. You know, too often we're desperate to to, to see conversions, and we try to convince people with this idea that following Christ is like a get-blessed-quick scheme or, or, or that if you follow him, then it'll be pie in the sky, by and by. But Jesus' sales pitch for following him is you will have troubles. Troubles are going to come. Pain and trials will come. You know, Jesus not only gives us but fulfills so many amazing promises. One of the promises of Jesus that we don't celebrate is this one. Hey, troubles are going to come. But, you know, faith doesn't remove the obstacles. Faith helps us through it. Jesus says, take faith, take heart, because I've overcome the world. All its troubles, all its pain, all its sorrows, all its trials, you can have faith to get through those things because Jesus has overcome the world. But Jesus prepared his disciples for the oncoming troubles while they were hanging out in that cold state. And, again, this author, Duhigg, says if you anticipate an obstacle when you're in the cold state, when you're not in the heat of actually facing the obstacle and you come up with a solution, it's easier and much more likely that you'll follow through on your plan. So much like Jesus in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Joshua, who leads the Israelites into the promised land, who through Jericho and then those battles afterwards helps them take possession of this land that was promised. When his leadership was coming to an end and he was divvying up the land, he was speaking to the Israelites in a cold state. They weren't in the heat of battle. They were getting ready to divide the land. And he was speaking to the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh as they allotted portions of the promised land to each tribe. And he says in Joshua 17, verses 17 through 18, says, Joshua said to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, the descendants of Joseph, he says, since you are so large and strong, you will be given more than one portion. The forest of the hill country will be yours as well. Clear as much of the land as you wish and take possession of its farthest corners. And you will drive out the Canaanites from the valleys too, even though they are strong and have iron chariots. You know, Joshua was speaking from experience. The experience of a, of a leader and a man who God had said before they went into the promised land, everywhere you set your foot, I'm going to give you that, right? The victory, I'm going to give it to you. You simply need to walk in and take possession, right? This whole idea, if God is for us, then who can be against us, right? But that very statement carries meaning when you're up against tough odds. When you're up against odds that, man, droids in Star Wars would lament verbally, right? The, the idea of, of no weapon formed against me will prosper, that very statement speaks to the fact that there will be weapons, that there will be opposition. There will be obstacles that come our way, but they won't prosper. But again, these statements, they mean the most when you know you're going to face iron chariots. You're going to face opposition. You're going to face obstacles. But again, in a cold state, when you're just looking forward to it in the future, 
It's so easy for the Israelites to hear about iron chariots and think, yeah, iron chariots, we'll take care of it. But then you face them. It's a whole different ordeal. It says in Judges 1.19, it says the Lord was with the people of Judah. God was with them. And they took possession of the hill country. But they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. Meanwhile, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh that we had just talked about, that Joshua had spoken to about the enemies with iron chariots, they too failed in driving out the enemy. You know, taking possession of a promise or a promised land that God has given you sounds like an awesome resolution. Then those pesky iron chariots rise up in opposition. You know, the result of Israel not driving out those nations with the iron chariots is made very clear in the book of Judges. There's chaos. There's oppression. What it speaks to us is this. If you don't fight the good fight of faith, then you will fight the fight of discord. You can fight the good fight of faith or you'll eventually fight the fight of discord. Again, possessing the land was this awesome resolution, an awesome command from Joshua until those iron chariots rise up in opposition. And instead of taking possession, we see they live under oppression. It says in Judges chapter 4, verse 3, we hear of the oppression of this king Sisera who had 900 iron chariots. He ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out, to the Lord for help. And maybe we read all of this and say, come on. God just delivered you from Egypt, right? Not ancient history, recent history. He delivered you from Egypt, all those plagues. Delivered you through the Red Sea, right? Parted the Jordan on top of that. <laughs> A second time, parting water for you to go through. All these victories over Jericho, all these other cities, right? How could you not trust God for some iron chariots? You've got what you deserve, plain and simple. Yet iron chariots were like the height of wartime weaponry in that time. You think of like tanks in World War II, how they were the height of, of weaponry in that time. Think of the last scene in Saving Private Ryan and the intimidation that comes when that tank enters, right? This picture that's on the screen. It's from Tiananmen Square in the spring of 1989. Uh, it's that man, we don't know who he is, don't know his history, don't know what happened afterwards. He's simply known as Tank Man. It's widely considered one of the greatest news images of our time. Again, when these protests in Tiananmen Square had turned violent. It's this famous scene where this man is standing up to four tanks, but as you pan out and there's other pictures, there's far more tanks behind that. He just walks in front of them and stops. Climbs on it at one point, but it's the equivalent of Gandalf, right, in, in historical terms. He's saying, you will not pass. And they all stop. Tanks stopping for this, this one man carrying two bags of, I don't know, groceries in the middle of the road. The photographer who took this picture was up in a building, like in hiding, and he said, I was so scared. And he says of this man, I assume he thinks he's going to die, but he doesn't care. Because for whatever reason, either he's lost a loved one or he's just had it with the government. For whatever it is, his statement is more important than his own life. Whatever this man's thinking was, whatever his circumstance, whatever his reasoning for what he did, one thing is clear. Personal safety wasn't at the top of his list of priorities. It was certainly no idol in his life. It wasn't chief on his list of concerns, his own personal safety. And as a result, his actions became like this icon and inspiration for oppressed people all over the globe. You know, so often in life, no doubt you've heard this phrase many times, especially from your parents as a kid, safety first. Safety first. It's good for kids, right? And it speaks to this reality that safety is so often towards the top of our list of priorities. And again, at times that's a good thing, but the Bible, you read the Bible, you begin to realize, you're gonna look at Jesus' life, the way he lived it, 
for you to look at Jesus' teachings, it's closer, I don't know where it is in the spectrum, but it's closer sometimes to safety last than it is safety first, right? This is Jesus who said whoever wants to save his life will lose it. I love uh, C.S. Lewis's book in, in, the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? It's this allegory, an allusion to the Christian faith. And in that book, Jesus is represented by this lion, Aslan. So Lucy asks, because he's a lion, like, is he safe? And her reply she gets is safe. Of course not. But he's good. But he's good. See, Jesus didn't come to say, I, I-, I give you safety and I give you safety more abundantly. He said, I give you life. Not necessarily a safe life. I come to give you life a good life, and life more abundantly because life and all its fulfillment isn't always found in our comfort zone. Very rarely are you going to get an adrenaline rush on your couch, right, where you feel the most safe. And again, Jesus said whoever wants to save his life will lose it. That doesn't always jive in a culture that champions security, that champions our own comfort. I believe it's why again and again in the Bible it says, fear not. Again and again in the Bible, because this life we're called to isn't one that is safety first. But we often live life as if our chief aim is to arrive safely at death. But that's not how Jesus lived. And faith in Jesus should spark fearlessness in our hearts. I've said it before that, man, your comfort zone is a danger zone. Why? Because safety shrinks. Safety can shrink your life to where you get self-absorbed, small-minded, sometimes downright petty, but safety also shrinks God. A life that celebrates safety, God just becomes your celestial seatbelt, right? Not the God who calls you to take up your cross, but the God who calls you to take up a life of comfort. And when we allow fear, doubt, guilt, self-defeating beliefs to dominate our thinking, it's what the Bible speaks to as shrinking. Again, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, it said there, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. You can think of examples in the Old Testament where people shrunk back when they were called to stand up and move forward. For instance, the Israelites, when they first got to the promised land in Numbers chapter 13, that group of spies goes into the land and it comes back with this report, yeah, the land is good, but there's giants, there's intimidating people there, and we are like grasshoppers. That's their self-assessment. That's not how God saw them. And what's interesting is when the Israelites sent spies into Jericho, that's not how Jericho saw them. Jericho was terrified, not because of who the Israelites were, but because of the God they served that had pulled them out of Egypt, that had parted the Red Sea, parted the Jordan. Like, because God was with them, everybody against them was full of fear. But to them, their self-assessment, their self-doubt was self-defeating. We're like grasshoppers. This inclination to shrink back followed the Israelites. You see it in Joshua. You see it in Judges. You see it when they would fail to possess the promised land. But it's so powerful when people would stand in opposition to that, like Joshua and Caleb. When those first spies were sent in, I love Caleb. He he basically tells them to shut up, calls for silence, to silence the negativity. And he says, let's go up and possess the land. I love that perspective. They didn't have to conquer and take the land. It was given to them. They just had to go through the obstacles and opposition to possess it. In his mind, it was already conquered. They simply had to go possess it. But again, this inclination to shrink and fall back, it followed the Israelites. And because they failed to to take out these iron chariots, they settled instead of possessing the promised land for oppression in the promised land. You know, we'll all have 
enemies and conflicts and opposition in life, between where we are now and between the promises and purposes and dreams that God has for our lives, we'll all have obstacles along the way. There will be battlefields. The question is, will we live empowered and confident in those moments or will we shrink back? We'll either live directed by faith or dictated by fear. And the question is, how will I live? It's not easy. Well, it is easy to live a life that runs from confrontation and toward comfort. But you read the Bible, it doesn't say that God is the ever-present help in times of comfort. It says he's the ever-present help in times of trial, sorrow, need, trouble. That's when he's there. So, man, run toward your opposition. Maybe you'll find God there. Run toward those dreams that seem intimidating. Maybe you'll find God there. You know, if you're running from what you fear in life, chances are you'll be running your entire life. And once you begin this process and this mindset and this pattern of shrinking back whenever there's opposition or there's confrontation, it's a hard pattern to break. I know in my life, this, this avoidance of conflict had a grip on my life for so long until I began to realize certain things. I just want to give you two uh thoughts tonight where maybe you're like, man, I shrink back so much when I know God wants me to be confident, when I know God wants me to be empowered and step into these moments and take on these iron chariots. How do I, how do I feel confident in those moments? Because we don't just need the thousands of promises of God in the Bible. We need the confidence to walk in them, possess those promises, and apply them to our lives. That'll take confidence. That'll take facing conflict. Otherwise, we can end up with like the other generation of Israelites had the promise of God, had this promised land, but they were on the wrong side of the river just looking at it. How many of us live our lives like that because we shrink back rather than living empowered? So I just want to give you two thoughts to how do I live empowered, one, how do I live confident, and then how do I empower others? Because God calls us to both. And the first thought is simply that there's power in approval. There's power in approval. What's powerful when you think about that is when you work for the approval of man, that's when you so often shrink back. You begin to think, man, what about, what are they going to think, right, when you work for the approval of man? But when you work from the approval and the assurance of God and his love, that will empower you again and again and again. The power in you to fight often comes from what you think God thinks of you, right? There's that A.W. Tozer quote we've spoke of before where he says, man, a, a wrong view of God can lead to thousands of lesser evils. So we need to think rightly of God, but in that, we need to focus on the fact that we also need to think rightly of what God thinks of us. Because if you see yourself as unpleasing before God or unapproved by God, you're going to shrink back every time. You know, a powerful verse in my life where I see this has been Isaiah 6, where God's trying to call Isaiah to be a prophet to his people And this was one of those instances where a fear not would have been nice, right? There's not one in the passage, and Isaiah falls to the ground. He's like, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips that comes from an unclean people, and he was in the presence of God. So he's scared. His his confession of his lips is, woe is me. That was his cry before he was cleansed. And, man, any call to ministry, it's got to flow from that experience of, of God's mercy. All we do in God's name should flow from the experience of all that he's already done for us. Isaiah's woe is me. It came before he said, here I am, send me. He would go on and move forward with this humble confidence, right? This this humble swagger. And sometimes I think we think humility is shrinking back. But no, humility is simply thinking less of yourself and more of God. And Isaiah 
he walks with this confidence because he's grasped the love of God for his life because he had been cleansed. You know, there's a confidence and an empowerment that comes when you realize that God is irrevocably, absolutely, totally committed to you serving his purposes in this life. Right? If there's something that you know qualifies as according to his will, or as God's dream, or as his purpose, go after it with all you have. Never shrink back. When we can understand God's calling and his purposes, our, our, our focus shifts from our deficiencies, and it begins to focus more on our opportunity. Isaiah's, his perspective in Isaiah 6, it shifts from, man, woe is me, all my deficiency. I'm a man of unclean lips from an unclean people, and it, it ends with, here I am, send me. His eyes are on the opportunity. The Israelites, when they got to the promised land, uh, most of those spies had their eyes on their deficiencies. We look like grasshoppers compared to these people. Whereas Caleb and Joshua, their eyes were on the opportunity. They didn't even, they, let's just go possess the land that God has already promised to us. Again, a focus on our deficiencies or thinking that God is focused on our deficiencies creates this confession. I mean, I can't. But when you begin to realize that there's God-saturated, God-ordained opportunities, you begin to realize he can. Not so much I can, right, but he can through me. Remember your approval. Again, when you work for the approval of man, you'll shrink back every time. But when you can work from the approval and assurance and love and grace and mercy of God, man, you, when your ministry flows from an experience of that mercy and grace, you'll be empowered every time. The second thought just to share with you tonight is we're empowered through experience. Now, I once heard somebody say that experience is the teacher of fools. It's a strong statement. It's a debatable statement. But he was speaking to the fact that, man, you don't have to touch the stove for yourself to realize that it's hot. You can actually listen to your, your parents. You can actually uh, heed the warning that's given with these stoves. You don't have to put your hand on the stove to realize it's hot. right? You, you can heed the instructions. You can heed the experiences of others. But, again, our own personal experience, indeed, it is crucial to growth. But we can learn from it the experiences of others. Man, you want to be empowered? Find a Caleb. Find a Joshua. So in those moments in life where you feel like a grasshopper, when you feel like his promises and purposes are too big, they can kick you in their pants. Tell the voice of the enemy, hey, shut up, be quiet, like Caleb did to those other uh, spies, and empower you. Find a Paul to your Timothy. Find a David who's a giant killer, right, who runs towards opposition and obstacles. One proven key to successful New Year's resolutions is the step of make it public. Tell somebody. Bring in support in terms of people who have been there, who know what you're doing, who can hold you accountable, who can cheer you on. Because let's be serious. You set a goal. There are going to be days where your motivation is low, <laughs> There are going to be days where you simply don't want to exercise. There are going to be days where you simply want to eat that hamburger. But when you have people in your life that know that this is your goal and they're encouraging you and cheerleading you, then come on. It's for the same reason. If you have a powerful, powerful excuse me, uh, service at church, that God speaks to you during worship. You have a powerful time at the altar where your, your whole mindset has shifted. You're ready to go tackle some big dream or tackle some issue in your life and finally deal with it. Or you have a powerful time in prayer or maybe a powerful time in God's word where he spoke to you. So often my encouragement is, hey, tell somebody. Tell somebody. Because what that does is that invites them in. It invites people that can encourage you. It can invite people that are going to cheer you on. And then it can also invite accountability. 
Now, that's such a, we made it such a dirty word because we made accountability all about minimizing. You know, we're, we're, we picture accountability as sin management, trying to, to, to kill out the bad things in your life. But accountability is also about dream management as much as it is about sin management. Not just minimizing sin, but are you maximizing the opportunities that God gives you to live the dreams he's called you to? Sometimes we don't need accountability concerning the things we commit. We need accountability for the action that we omit. Things that God is calling us to step into were accountabilities that, again, that kick in the pants like, hey, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. No weapon formed against you will prosper. People that can speak those realities into those moments where we're inclined to shrink back. That, too, is accountability. Not just sin management, but dream management. We need accountability like Caleb, again, to encourage us and challenge us in those moments. We need accountability like Paul who, who trained up Timothy or, or, or David that has, has, has chased lions, chased bears, who has experience that can speak to our lives. Who do you have to encourage you? Not just help you through sin issues or bad habits, but to encourage you to dream big. Who's encouraging you to set lofty goals, aim high for what God wants to do in your life? You should commit to those connections. But, you know, even when you don't have those connections in your life, maybe you feel isolated for, maybe it's good reason. We have history. We have accounts. We have the Bible. We have the testimony of others who, again, have defeated chariots, chased giants. What did the Israelites have who faced these iron chariots in the promised land and in the book of Judges and Joshua? They didn't have to look far. Recent history was the Red Sea where Again, the Israelites weren't just up against the Red Sea. They were between a rock and a hard place. There were some historians estimate about 600 of Pharaoh's chariots on the other side of the Red Sea. They had nowhere to go at the Red Sea. And I love the prophet Habakkuk. He looks back at this moment when he's prophesying. He says, was it in anger, Lord, that you struck the rivers and parted the sea? Were you displeased with them? No, you were sending your chariots of salvation. Pharaoh sent his chariots. God sent his. Guess who won? In the pivotal moment of the Israelites' deliverance in the Red Sea, I love verse, uh, it's Exodus 14, verse 25. It says, God twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. This is when they were trying to cross the Red Sea in pursuit of the Israelites. Let's get out of here, away from these Israelites, the Egyptians shouted, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Now, in my Bible, for, for that verse, there's a, a footnote next to Twisted where it said it can also be translated, he removed the wheels from their chariots. Another translation said he, he made their chariot wheels hard to turn and their chariots difficult to drive. Now, no matter how you interpret it, no matter how you, you, you uh, apply it, you should take note, God hits the Egyptians right in their symbol of power. Their mighty chariots that had just moments before struck terror and fear into the hearts of the Israelites are the very uh, instrument of their doom and their destruction. These chariots. Opposition and obstacles are not a, pro a problem for God as much as they're an opportunity for him to show out like he did at the Red Sea. And what I, you know, I've read this verse dozens of times, and then I, I read it once and realized, they said, let's get out of here, away from these Israelites. The Egyptians and their chariots. Like it, it, clearly the Israelites were called to get to the other side of the Red Sea, but if they had fight in them and were called to chase these Egyptians, the Egyptians would have run with those chariots because they realized not that these Israelites were so strong, but, man, the Lord is fighting for them against us. Our chariots mean nothing before God. You know what happens in Judges when they finally defeat those iron chariots that have been a thorn in Israel's side. It's not because 
some military genius rose up with a genius plan or, 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 or some genius strategy to finally get rid of these chariots. It was at the Battle of Tabor. It's in Judges chapter 5 where Deborah, right, leads the Israelites out to fight Sisera. And it says what ultimately crippled their chariots was rain, right? It's rain so heavy that a torrent from a river Right, made life difficult for them in their chariots. It says in Judges 5.21, the torrent Kishon, which is a river, swept the enemy away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, says, oh, my soul, march on with strength. And ancient historians, Josephus, these historians outside of the Bible say that it was rain and, and this river swelling up that, man, their chariots meant nothing when the time of battle finally came. This God works behind the scenes, and sometimes works in the forefront where we, even historians, can witness it, that, that, man, opposition and obstacles mean nothing when you've got God on your side. Man, I'm losing my voice, but it's all right. We got 10, 15 minutes left. My uh, only movie I've watched more than Gladiator is Star Wars. Facts. But Gladiator is probably like my favorite movie ever. So <clears throat> I think I've ruined it from the pulpit multiple times, the ending so I'm going to do it again. Uh, but uh, shame on you because it's been, what, 20 years since it came out. But Maximus, right, the main character, gets brought into the Colosseum, actually pursues getting taken to the Colosseum. And, and there's this scene where he and his men, right, they, they stage these battles in the Colosseum. His men are on foot. And they're reenacting a battle kind of loosely. And uh, out come the enemy. And they got chariots. Seems like... They kind of gave them the upper hand and kind of tilted the table in their favor. But Maximus wasn't just any gladiator in the Colosseum. He was a successful general. So in those moments, he, he builds a strategy. They take out the chariots. And I love that scene, right? And I'm probably watching it for like my 20th time when one of these chariots tip over and I look. And I'm like, man, what is that? And you can see like this hydraulic tank or fuel tank right, right there in the chariot that they probably used to help it flip over. Right, And this tank that probably should have only been in the commentary or the behind the scenes was right there for everyone and anyone who ever watches this movie to see. Like, oh, this is how they flip the chariot over. That's interesting, right? But I love that the Bible shows God active again and again. Sometimes behind the scenes, but sometimes right there for us to see at the Red Sea, at the Jordan River at Jericho, throughout the Bible again and again, just showing these moves of God in the midst of seemingly crazy opposition. A sea and 600 chariots, what would you do, right? But God delivered them. That's why David would confidently state in Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8, he says, some nations boast of their chariots and horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. Those nations will fall down and collapse, right? You could say those nations will eventually shrink but we will rise up and stand firm. Come on, as we look to 2018, may it be a year where we rise up and stand firm, where we stop the, the habits and inclination to shrink back and run from, from problems and issues back to comfort again, and, and, and where we hear and heed fear not. Because, man, fear, it grows with inaction. And even the smallest step towards that promise or that purpose or towards that opposition, it can fight fear and it can disable your doubts. It doesn't have to be a giant step. Sometimes those small steps are what fights fear for us. You know, at the end of Gladiator, he dies, and uh, the, they come out, 
And he's laying there dead in the Colosseum, and they say, honor him. Now, why do they want to honor him? What did he do to earn honor? It's the fact that he lived life and fought when others feared. He took risks. He lived a life that screamed safety last. He stood up to chariots as this tank man stood up to a tank and multiple tanks. Man, again, so often we live life as if our chief aim is to arrive safely at death. But I don't think anybody in here, when it comes time for our obituary or tombstone, wants it to read, well, nothing bad happened, right? We want something more for our life. We want to know that we walked in some greater purpose. And may we realize that safety first isn't always compatible with those who want to save their life will lose it. You know, if I could have the worship team come up, because we're going to close tonight in worship, and we're going to go into 2018 with worship, but may we recognize where God wants us to rise up and where God wants us to stand firm, where God wants us to resolve to stop shrinking. You know, one area where, where I'm in, I know I need to rise up. The church needs to rise up, both our church and the church at large. One area where we need to rise up is we need to be a people that says more and more, here I am, send me. How often do we find excuses when God's given us the call, God's given us the commission to make disciples, but how often do we shrink back? We aren't called to live lives of comfort. We aren't called to be a safe people. We are a sent people. Where have we shrunk back? So often... We shrink back again from evangelism and sharing the hope we have, and we think, woe is me, I'm an introvert. Woe is me, I don't have the head knowledge. Woe is me, I don't have the time. We make these excuses, but man, God is waiting for people to rise up and say, here I am, send me. Who realized in the book of Acts, he took unschooled and ordinary people and sparked revival and changed the world. He can do the same through us. Not through our strength, not through our might, but through the Holy Spirit in us. So this new year... Maybe your resolution is read more. Maybe it's pray more. As a pastor, I celebrate those things, right? Make it a goal to pray more. But you know what will fortify that resolution? You know what I would challenge you in is in the new year, dream, dream so big, pursue purposes so big, to possess promises so big that you'll be forced to pray. Maybe we need to, to, to shift the focus to maybe I just need to step out of my comfort zone so that I'm going to have no option but to pray. There was a season in my life not too long ago where I was planning a church campus and closing an international adoption. I was like, God, why did they fall at the same time? I had to pray. It drove me to my knees because I needed wisdom. I needed strength. Man, in 2018, seek those dreams that maybe you've been avoiding, those purposes, those promises that maybe you thought it's too hard. Begin to press towards them. There might be opposition, but God is our very present help in the presence of oppositions or, or troubles. And then secondly, that's the area to rise up, but an area to stand firm. Where are you feeling, where would you say you're feeling oppressed? Like you haven't possessed God's promises, like you've actually shrunk back where he's called you to step forward. What are the iron chariots in your life? Maybe they're habits, maybe they're perspectives or mindsets or addictions perspectives that need to shift or you'll continue to shrink. I don't know what it is for you, but man, there's, again, for every one of us between here and there, there's going to be iron chariots. Jesus said there will be troubles. What's troubling you? And I would just invite you, man, invite people in. Usher in accountability, not just to minimize sin, but to maximize our possession of the promises God has for us. Maybe you inviting accountability in is 
inviting somebody to coffee next week, but maybe it's signing up for a life group, but it's digging into relationships. So not only can you know people, but people can know you. People can hold you accountable. But can we need men and women like Caleb who remind us that, hey, these promises in the Bible, they're awesome. There's thousands of them. They're ours. But, man, we need the confidence and the courage to take possession of them. Not to settle for a life like the older generation of Israelites that had the promised land, but because they lacked the, lacked the confidence in God, they never stepped into it. They just saw it. I don't want to just see the promises that God has for me in his word. I don't want to just see the, the, the promises around me. I want to possess them. Sometimes that takes courage, and sometimes that courage takes people around you to, to rally around you in those moments so you don't shrink back, but you rise up and stand firm. May our 2018 not be a year where we shrink back, where the synopsis of our 2018 is, well, <laughs> nothing bad happened, right? Safety first. We succeeded in that. May we rise up and stand firm and dream big and take possession of God's promises. Again, I don't know what they are for you, but I can tell you as we stand up and worship, I would love to pray for you. There are leaders here that would love to rally around you. There's people here that would love to keep you accountable in those dreams. Tell somebody. Tell somebody what it is. And let's commit in 2018 to not shrinking back from the iron chariots that are in life, but to be mindful that, man, even now as we're in a service, we're in our cold state. Jesus said, yes, there's going to be trouble. When you have trouble, other emotions might rise up the, in the heat of the moment. But in that moment, we can remember to take heart and have faith because Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus is... As we close in worship tonight, we thank you that that is a reality. God, that is present right now in this place. That Jesus at the cross, you overcame sin, you overcame death, so that we can overcome any habit, we can overcome any perspective, any paradigm that needs to be broken. God, so that we can step into the promises you have for us. And God, there's no promise more precious than being able to step into your presence, to know you to worship you, not just in a temple or in a church, but every day of our lives. That promise that you never leave, you never forsake us, God. So even tonight as we close, we step into your presence. And man, if the confession of your lips tonight is, man, I need to, to, to shrink back less, and I simply want to say, here I am, send me, then Maybe physically you need to just come up into this altar. Send yourself out of your pew. But maybe you're thinking, man, there's just iron chariots that have held me back. That I need to commit to overcome and tell somebody, I'll be here. I'd love to pray for you. We've got leaders here that would love to pray for you. But let's stand in this moment and worship Jesus Christ. Because he was mindful enough to, to warn us and help us foresee the obstacles and tell us there will be trouble. But he came, he chased us as we sang in that song, Reckless Love. He chased us. He came to earth. We get to celebrate Christmas because he came to give us grace, mercy, and love through the cross. So we worship you for that tonight, Jesus.